And welcome everyone to the 53rd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Vicki Odino. I'm with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we will be discussing current events with a panel consisting of our very own Atlas Society scholars, philosopher Stephen Hicks and economist Richard Salzman. We will also be saving time at the end to take some audience questions. So throughout the discussion, please type your questions into the Zoom Q&A or chat, or if you're watching us live on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, you can type those into the comment stream as well. So thanks for joining us and let's go ahead and get started with our first topic. We're gonna discover two areas. One is critical race theory, our first one. And I'm actually gonna go straight to Stephen and ask if you can just explain to us exactly what is meant by critical race theory and what the origin is of this ideology. Yeah, well, of course, racism is one of those uh, perennial issues in modern times. Uh, uh, and most of us are familiar with a, understanding it as a kind of collectivism Often it operates as a, as a kind of prejudice uh, before people are particularly thoughtful, but then in a more sophisticated form, it can come out as, a, as an ism, a principled way of thinking about your identity and the identity of other, other people. And most of us, uh, 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 of you know, the last two, three, four generations in modern society have taught, been taught, I think, rather successfully certain attitudes toward racism, that it's, a, that it's, a, it's an atavism, it's uh, morally repugnant and that any sort of double standards socially and politically that are built upon it, uh, we need to understand what they're, where they come from uh, and dismantle them you know, uh, if they happen to have crept into our own thinking, but certainly into any social double standards or double standards in the law and so on. So here the idea is, and this is a very modernist idea, that all of us are fundamentally individuals uh, that we are born with the capacity to create our core identities uh, and that we have a moral responsibility to do so, but that all human beings around the world, so there's a universalism here, have the same core capacities, the same core potentials, the same uh, original actualities as, as human beings. And then we have to understand that certainly uh, issues of ethnicity and race and all of these other things can be a part of your identity, sometimes legitimately, but those are relatively uh, uh, superficial. So this is uh, the tradition of anti-racism that we find in Frederick Douglass, uh, in Ayn Rand, in Martin Luther King, and then uh, in legal form in, uh, in Clarence Thomas. So Frederick Douglass is, uh, is urging and standing as an example himself of being a self-made man. And, uh, and being able to create whom he wants and then going on a, a cultural crusade to educate people that all human beings have the, the same uh, actually awesome and astounding potential. In more philosophical form, we have Rand critiquing racism as a kind of collectivism and then psychologically, morally, socially, politically counterposing uh, individualism to that. Martin Luther King Jr. with his, uh, his resounding phrase of judging people by the content of their character, right, rather than the color of their skin. And then uh, uh, Clarence Thomas uh, following in that tradition. Now, critical race theory is a completely different animal, right? It bills itself as anti-racist, and I'm not sure that that's actually true, 
but uh, it does come from a very different philosophical universe. It doesn't believe in individuals. It doesn't believe in any optimistic and progressive understanding of what's possible for human, for human beings. Uh, and it, is, uh, it does not believe in, in individual agency and moral responsibility. So I wanna just uh, highlight three phrases here and give a, give a quotation. The other uh, uh, point of the definition though is going to be that uh, you know, what we call critical race theory, when you break it down really is integrating three components. And all of those three components get worked out in the academic literature. What is now critical race theory is an application of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a worked out integrated philosophical package and all of those elements uh, uh, are the opposite of the kind of anti-racism that most of us have, have taught. So the three words are going to be uh, critical theory, right? And its relationships to postmodernism. modernism the, the word structural, you'll hear a lot about structural racism and that's a very different thing from old fashioned racism uh, uh, apparently and the anti-individualism or, or the collectivism. So let me uh, do a quick screen share here. Uh, it says, host, the host disabled participant screen sharing. So I think Vicki, you are the host and you need to enable me to share my screen. If you can do that. The okay, we're working on that. Okay, so while you're doing that, uh, let me, just to say, critical theory is, uh, um, it's a movement, there's a root, uh, set of roots there, it's now three or four generations go. It's loosely associated with the, the Frankfurt School, uh, a kind of neo-Marxism, but we don't need to go down into those weeds too much right now. It is not the same thing as postmodernism, but it's closely related to postmodernism. But the core idea of critical theory is that we need to be critical and that doesn't mean just simply descriptively critical, but rather to take a negative uh, stance toward the modern world, toward the enlightenment and critique it uh, and destabilize it and find ways to undermine it, to set up for some sort of a revolution uh, as a result of that. Uh, now, it's not exactly postmodernism, but there's a lot of overlap between uh, postmodernism and critical theory. They do come out of the same thing. Let me try the share screen again. Ah, here we go. Beautiful. Thank you, Vicki, for solving that. So here we are. Uh, can you just give me some feedback? Can you see now a white screen? There it is. Okay, got it. Okay. I can't quite read all of this right now. But here's the, uh, the point that the critical theorists and the postmoderns will draw on about individualism. So one of the things, of course, that we find is a thoroughgoing collectivism. You are not an individual agent. You are part of a collective group, and there are different collective groups with their own agendas and so on. So in the postmodern framework, subjectivity, and why they, that they just mean you know, individual subjects, uh, people who have a, have, a, have a subjective life, in all its concrete forms and manifestations as person, as individual, as self, as race cogitans, as, as thinking being, as moral agent, as aesthetic subject, as author, as bearer of human rights is theoretically and practically at the end of its tether, if not already defunct. 
And then again, postmodernism is the dissolution of subjectivity into overarching structures and systems. Now, this is from a piece published in Philosophy and Literature, kind of a mainstream journal. But notice the dates, uh, 1999. The three quotations I'm going to give you are all from late 80s and, and 1990s. And so critical race theory as a movement, uh, as an application of a broader critical theory is incubated and developed in the academic world in the 80s and 90s. And then uh, it's going to then manifest itself after a generation of teaching uh, into a, a widespread cultural phenomenon and an activist movement in, in our generation. But notice what we have here is a huge movement right, committed to the idea that the individual does not exist right, in all of these elements. You are not a moral agent. You are not an experiencer of uh, aesthetic uh, ideas. You do not have human rights. All of this is going to be uh, dissolved, set aside. Instead, the, the individual is just born into certain kinds of systems or certain, certain kinds of structures and is, is, is created, uh, created by that. So the anti-individualism and the strong collectivism that's everywhere in this movement, that's developed a generation ago. Now, we hear a lot then about uh, structural racism, and that's meant as, as a term of art, as a technical term to distinguish it from all of the other kinds of racism. We've had very good arguments about the old kinds of racism, and we're successful at getting rid of that, and most people are on board with that. But we need a new kind of racism because for the purposes of critical race theory and the activists, they're not, they don't think that they're going to win fighting the old fashioned battles against racism. So what do we mean by structural and structural racism? And here is my, my second quote. So here's from a, a, a book in 1987 on post-structuralist theory. Uh, in this century, that is to say the 20th century, the move towards structuralism in many disciplines has been a secular seeking out of hidden rules that regulate human behavior. So it's not that you make choices and that you are regulating your own behavior and that you are therefore a moral growth. There are other rules that regulate human beings, but also it's going to be important that these rules are hidden. You, especially as a normal person, are not going to be able to figure out what those rules are. We need specially trained critical thinkers or critical theorists rather who are going to be able to discern what these hidden rules are and how they regulate human beings. Structuralist approaches, carrying on the quote, challenge the humanist concept of the self as an autonomous agent by laying bare the extent to which its apparently free choices are predetermined. All right, so that's 1987. Uh, and then one more quotation. This is from uh, uh, Richard Delgado and John, uh, Jean Stefan, Jean rather Stefansic. And these are, are uh, uh, two of the, usually there's about four people who are labeled as the official founders of critical race theory. But notice the broader agenda here that we are not concerned with traditional anti-racism, individualist anti-racism. Think of Martin Luther King here. Think of Friedrich, uh, Frederick Douglass rather. The critical race theorists hate those guys. They see them as philosophical enemies and they're not on board with, uh, with all of that. And it's partly why someone like Clarence Thomas gets read out of the movement uh, from, from, from this perspective. And, and so this is then going to be the activist step applying to racial issues, the postmodernism, the critical theory, the structuralism and so on. So then what we have is unlike tr traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress 
critical race theory questions. And again, by questions, that's an academic term of art. That means rejects right? the very foundations of the liberal order. Notice that we reject the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory. We're not about equality. Uh, legal reasoning, and think about what's built into legal reasoning, presumption of innocence, due process, rules of evidence, uh, uh, balanced uh, arguments on both sides of the debate. We reject all of that. Enlightenment rationalism, by which they mean more generically just enlightenment reason, and neutral principles of constitutional law. So what we have then is a postmodernism, philosophically, tied in with critical theory, which is highly adversarial and critical of all elements of modern civilization. The structuralism, the idea that there are no autonomous agents and there are no individuals, rather everything is uh, constituted by hidden structural rules that only the trained critical theorists can be aware of. And in activist movement form, these are the things that we need to critique, undermine and replace with a new kind of racial understanding. So with all of that, uh, that is critical race theory. And the point is going to be just once again, this is high theory, but the high theory matters. Ideas move the world. This uh, swept certain uh, 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 academic uh, uh, disciplines, important academic disciplines in the 80s and 90s was taught widely in the first two decades of the 21st century. And now we are seeing the cultural and activist manifestations of it. I'll stop there for now. Great, thank you, Stephen. And can you go ahead and- um, Unshare? Yeah, and unshare, that would be- Okay, delegate. That would be great. And here. Richard, I'm sure you have um, plenty to add to that, but I also wanna throw in there that it also seems that we're seeing more stories about people pushing back um, just recently. And so I'm just wondering if there's any reason to be hopeful that people are kind of catching on to this and um, pushing back on it. Mm. Yeah, I will say something about that. I just wanted to reaffirm some of what uh, Dr. Hicks said uh, that I noticed in the literature as well uh, that I have noticed over the years. The critique part, um, critiques generally, and we think most famously perhaps of Kant's critique of pure reason, but also the Marxist critique of capitalism. There's a very much of a destructionist approach. It's not an attempt to salvage or reestablish re a better foundation for reason in capitalism, but rather to basically show that neither is legitimate. And so that I think that's helpful to keep in mind when you think of anything having to do with critical, fill in the blank, critical theory broadly, critical legal theory. We were talking earlier before we got on, there's even something called critical tax theory. So the critique, uh, the critique is the idea that this, has to be torn down completely, uh, ended, not mended. So uh, I think that would be helpful just to, if you keep in mind that that has been the, at least the, the project of people like Marx and Kant and others. The, the other thing is interesting, the, the, the quotes Professor Hicks gave on the idea of hidden rules that govern us and the, the idea that we are determined you know, by forces beyond our control. There is in the Marxist literature as well, and, I, and again, I don't wanna trace all of this to Marx, but many of them have been influenced by Marx. There's a concept called false consciousness. And false consciousness was something that Engels came up with in the late 1890s when they were observing that the proletariat were not revolting. 
They, they, they were not doing what Marx said. They did not seem to be angry at the capitalists. They seemed not to be overthrowing the system or attacking the factories. And the false consciousness idea was the idea that, well, for some reason, labor is not aware of how they're being exploited. For some reason, they've adopted and kind of absorbed through osmosis, just living in a capitalist culture, the premises of the bourgeois. And that I notice is all over critical race theory. It's the idea of you think you're not racist, but you really are. And we can see this, but you cannot. And you know, if you think of the Salem witch trials, I think they had something called spectral evidence, spectral meaning ghost-like. Certain people saw the evidence and you didn't. And, and we, we assume you're a witch. And if you deny it, that means you're a witch and various tests of whether you uh, can refute this or not. So that I notice is coming up uh, as well also now. And then this last point, terminology, absolutely right. Dr. Hicks talks about structural, structural approach. If you hear words like systemic racism, institutional racism, structural racism. I mean, when Obama said racism is in our DNA, in America's DNA, the genetic genetics. Sometimes you'll hear it said that slavery or racism is our original sin using religious language. Like, well, you can't uh, expunge that. You're born with it. And the nation was born with it. Uh, so that's the argument. So understand that and you need to have to reject that and, and, and also see how radically different that would be from simply recognizing and saying, yes, there is a racist background and a slavery background to America. But uh, to the extent it's been fixed, the country should be proud of that, right? And so not just the Civil War, but the uh, Reconstruction period after the Civil War, the great three amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th, the Civil Rights Act. Now, you, I've heard some argue that the fact that you have to keep repeatedly coming back, changing law means there seems to be persistent racism uh, in, in the United States, but there is no evidence any longer. I don't think there's been evidence for, uh, at least since the Jim Crow laws went away, that there's any systemic, structural, legal race. I mean, it's truly, it's literally illegal, not just uh, considered immoral, but um, it's just not systemic anymore. So the idea that scholars today would even be suggesting that it's the systemic today uh, is not only unfounded, but it would kind of rely on these other things like, well, it's hidden. You don't see it. And I see it. Now, on this last point, Vicki, the, the, yeah, I have noticed uh, the, the beginnings of a pushback, uh, some of it because critical legal, uh, critical race theory entered the education field. So the most, uh, the biggest growth in critical race theory in the last decade or so, I noticed, was in the schools of education. So this uh, Columbia and elsewhere, the, there they're trying to get the teachers and they, and they hand them, literally they hand them materials, curriculum, programs, and everything to inculcate this view in young students. And I think the uh, pandemic of the last year has made parents more visible, uh, has made the instruction more visible. Parents have noticed more this kind of stuff being taught and they're pushing back. I, I, I think there's a, a limit to how much you can do lobbying a school board because I mean ultimately these are unaccountable you know really political bureaucrats and you know philosophically I think we'd agree that the real fight has to be to reject it in the academic level at the intellectual level and, and so parents watching this they're like the tail end of all this can only do so much but I do think it's encouraging that you're starting to see public uh, uh, protestations against 
uh, using critical uh, race theory. There, there are other various journalists, uh, not so much scholars, but Chris Rufo is a good one if you wanna look for uh, good articles and, and uh, counters to this, R-U-F-O, I believe. I believe he's at uh, Manhattan Institute. So that's that's what I would say for now. Somewhat encouraging, but I don't see it. I don't see. I see it intensifying, if anything, in academia, not lessening. I'm actually going to ask a question because I'm not sure about this. So when Trump was in office, um, yeah. I believe he signed something um, forbidding critical race theory in government. Correct? Yeah, he did. And specifically in the military. In the military. So it's also, it's also spread into the Pentagon, CIA and elsewhere, but yes. And now did, um, did Biden um, eliminate that or is that still in effect? I don't know exactly. Um, he's tried to reverse a lot of other things. Um, I don't know about that, but it's, it's rampant in government, that's for sure. Yeah, which is gonna be a little bit harder to fight, I would imagine it at this stage, definitely. And I think too, you mentioned parents. So when you're talking about academics, um, the problem is we've got education schools that are teaching teachers this and administrators, obviously. Um, and so we need to go back there and change those before we're gonna be able to change, the parents are gonna be able to do anything at their local school. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yes, I, I, you know, I, I frankly think the other, uh, almost like kind of a tragic aspect of this is um, the very thing that makes Americans not want to be racist, namely the part of their history they're least proud of, makes them very fearful in the face of being called racist. I mean, someone who is bothered about being called racist uh, is not like, is not racist. It's not like they're being exposed or revealed in some way. So this is a particular attack on a particular country that has had racism and slavery in its background, but other cultures have as well, right? So why are they going after it? I mean, you could make a broader argument that this is yet another attempt to attack uh, capitalism uh, or to attack the Enlightenment broadly, but the Enlightenment is seen as most applicable to America. Now, because um, and the Enlightenment was most applicable to America, it, it got rid of slavery and predominantly got rid of most of racism. So it makes the current attack all the more ironic because here's a country that's made such progress precisely along these lines. And if in that final quote that Professor Hicks had, uh, rejection of the liberal order, literally rejection of liberty, rejection of reason, rationality, enlightenment, but those were the things that expunged racism and slavery from America. Mm -hmm. So if they're, if they're dedicated to bringing those back, including the tribalism associated with there are no individuals, an irony upon irony, they are actually bringing back racism. They're actually bringing back the possibility that uh, people would be uh, racist again. They're just being taught to think that way, look at each other that way. And so they're having the complete opposite effect of what they claim. You want to jump in on uh, Richard's comments uh, about the broader agenda and to an extent this is strategy and the, the ironies and so on. One thing that uh, is important for all of us who want to be in any way activists with respect to the current ideological wars is uh, the question of whether uh, the people who are making these arguments really believe the arguments or whether those arguments are being used as rhetorical weapons to destabilize you. 
And uh, you have to be very clear in particular contexts. If you're arguing one-on-one -on -one with someone or speaking to a particular group, which one you're dealing with. Now, there are lots of people in the academic world who buy into the high theory, they read all of the arguments and they really come out as postmodernists or critical theorists or believers in a certain understanding of, of American and world history. And they really believe that it's true, right? I'll, you know, to some extent putting those words in, in quotation marks. And so therefore the activist strategy that they are, they are mounting, they believe it's the right strategy. And that when they accuse you of being a racist by their lights, they really believe that you are a racist. And that's one type of person. And uh, your response to that kind of person uh, 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 will be successful uh, if you understand that they are, in fact, believing in the arguments, you understand the arguments and know how to counter them. But there are for a lot of people who are, uh, and this is, ties into the second part of what Richard was saying, who are opposed to the Enlightenment, the liberal order, the United States as a matter of principle. And the racism for them is not really what's driving the issue. Instead, they are, uh, you know, to use the military analogy, they are probing the enemy for weakness. They are looking for any cultural front, any issue that they can use to destabilize what they take to be their, their enemy. And so, you know, they're probing, you know, if we attack you on environmental issues, if we attack you on gender and sexist issues, if we attack you on economic issues, how do you react? Do you seem vulnerable and so on? And so in this way, they will be opportunistic with respect to the charges of racism because they know if they can mount an effective uh, anti-racist campaign, then people respond as, uh, as Richard responds. You know, they are decent people. They, don't, they know they're not racist, but nonetheless, they're very sensitive about it. They've got a little bit of guilt, a little bit of shame. Those people will become defensive. They will become destabilized. They'll start to invest all sorts of energy in, 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 in directions that are not going to be successful in, in the culture wars. And so that then is to say you're dealing with people who are using racism and so-called anti-racism as a cultural weapon. They don't really believe it but they know that it works against you to undermine your self-confidence and so on. So your rhetorical response or other kind of response to that kind of person has to be a different kind of response. It can't just be to sit down and say, we're now going to have an academic discussion about Delgado and the history of postmodernism and so on, because that's going to be completely pointless because that's not really what's driving their rhetorical strategy. Thanks for that. A couple of things before we move to the next topic. Mark Shoup um, posted a comment. Bishop Garrison is the Defense Department appointee leading the charge for military fealty to CRT. So mm. wanted to point that out. And then also, um, Stephen, I've been asked if you can put the reference to the Delgado into the chat. Good. And I noticed that and I did so a few minutes ago. So okay, yeah. I missed that. Then That's thank quite you. Fine. You're on That's... top of that. I appreciate I appreciate that. And if anybody else has any questions on what we were just talking about, feel free to uh, put those in the chat now or in the comments section and we will get to those at the end. I want to turn to our second topic uh, right now though. So the second topic is 
about the cyber terrorism and ransom. The colonial pipeline was shut by hackers or cyber, ter cyber terrorists, reportedly from abroad, dark side, causing cutoff of 40% of oil gas flows to the East Coast. And it is Colonial Pipeline is a private company. They agreed to pay $5 million in ransom to reopen, reportedly at the urging of the White House. So I'm gonna start with you, Richard, because I'm just curious about the role of government in cyber terrorism um, as regards to international foreign relations and as regards to this ransom and how the government should respond or should not respond because it doesn't seem like the Biden administration um, really got involved in that. So I'm gonna let you take that. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on this. Looked at broadly, of course, we would say that it's a proper function of government, uh, an institution that protects individual rights to fight crime. I mean, if crime is theft, rape, robbery, murder, that kind of thing. And certainly uh, stealing things, and in today's lingo, hacking, uh, demanding ransom uh, through packages are called ransomware. There's a whole bunch of things. Um, the, 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 it is a proper function of government. My concern is, and I've researched this a lot in the last few weeks, they don't spend a lot of time and money on it. They do have, at the FBI, and elsewhere, a cyber terrorist uh, department. They even have an, what's called interagency coordination, which is nice to see where, you know, the 56 field offices of the FBI have a cyber terrorist unit and they deal with other agencies, including local, local police departments and things. But I'm not sure this is a high priority as certainly as much as it should be for the government. So I think one of the things we should be advocating that, and it's an opportunity to show you know, say contra the libertarian position that the government should be doing something here. Uh, now, the other thing is, uh, you mentioned, Vicky, when it gets, uh, when it goes cross-border. So th this issue of whether the hacks are happening uh, cross-border, namely coming from other countries, there, there the State Department and say the Defense Department would be involved as well. Again, I'm not sure they're very, from what I have found, I'm not sure they're very good at coordinating uh, on that. They're not very good at talking to each other about it. This might sound a lot like what happened prior to 9-11, right? In the 9-11 report, we learned later, not a lot of interagency coordination and attention and funds spent on this. But even if they knew with precision, say, in the case of Colonial, that, you know, hackers in Moscow did it, I'm not sure there's enough um, commitment to basically contact the Russian leaders and say, you know, this has to be stopped. We demand that this be stopped. Um, you can do that with allies, of course. Even there, I'm not sure how much it's done. So I'm, I'm really concerned about this. It's, it's sabotage, uh, it's terrorism. It is a form of uh, terrorism, really. And the idea of, I mean, the damage done in the case of Colonial and the prospects of more, not only hacking, uh, in this case, an oil pipeline, but imagine hacking things like uh, medical records or defense systems, uh, NORAD and elsewhere, or hacking, say, the electrical grid. Our electrical grid has like three parts to it in the U.S., very easy to trip up the electrical grid. So um, the, and now, now add to this, uh, not just weakness, say, on a proper function of government, but in the background also on something like the pipeline, a real indifference and kind of callous indifference uh, 
to that, I noticed, because they don't want fossil fuels anyway. So here's Colonial and it's providing, I don't know, something like 30% of the oil, gas and distillates that go up and down the East Coast. And what was the first act of this administration was to shut down a pipeline, the XL pipeline. So by edict, the president shut down a pipeline as his first act in office. And then by ransomware, this hacker group shut down the Colonial oil pipeline. Well, when you think about it in terms of effects, the Biden administration would really be okay with either of them. Basically, two pipelines were shut down. And Jennifer Grantham, who's a Grantham, I think her name is, uh, the former governor of Michigan, now the energy secretary, actually said, well, uh, Colonial, yeah, that's disruptive. But if you owned an electric car, uh, you could have avoided the pain and suffering associated with that. That is really uh, outrageous as a statement. Here's the energy secretary and a major energy disruption due to a crime and the government is indifferent to it. And then when asked at a press conference, there was another Biden official who right in the middle of it was asked about it. And she said something like, now, that's really the choice of colonial, you know, whether they pay the ransom or not. You know, it's not really our business. And, and so here's this laissez-faire approach all of a sudden. Um, from a government that uh, not just this administration, but the prior government, a very invasive yeah. government, telling businesses to do all sorts of things. And now, now when they're literally being sabotaged, uh, the government is indifferent to it. It's a very disturbing um, situation. Now, the last thing I would say is, I mean, it is true that uh, companies have a self-interest in buying anti-virus or say anti-ransomware technology. And so I'm not saying this isn't entirely a government function. Um, I mean, the right of self-defense itself, you know, means you should be able to own a gun and defend yourself. Likewise, it's, of course, intelligent for companies to purchase security software that prevents ransomware. But unless there's assistance from the government in tracking down the criminals, uh, that's going to be a it's going to be a bad situation. It's going to get worse in the future years unless something's done about it. Mm. Yeah, Stephen, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I uh, jump in on uh, Richard's point about the uh, immediate reaction of this this particular administration, which uh, was was puzzling initially, but then not too puzzling. But the puzzling part comes from you know, saying that really the the political ethos that's been dominating American politics for the last half century has been a kind of mixed economy, right? A third way of uh, public-private partnerships in all of the major sectors: financial, transportation, energy, you know, banking, and 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 so on. And so the idea, you know, at least going back to uh, Bill Clinton in the 1990s, after the rejection uh, of the, the Reagan uh, era is that uh, an official embrace of the third way, that we're not going to be socialist, but we're not going to be capitalist instead in all major sectors of the American polity and economy. It's going to be joint uh, private-public uh, partnerships. And so uh, infrastructure, particularly energy infrastructure, is uh, you know, extraordinarily regulated in, in all particular ways, and the government to a large extent owns it or co-owns it with the major energy companies. So the puzzling thing was this kind of instinctual, that's perhaps too strong, but rather knee-jerk response 
on the part of the new administration of distancing itself immediately from a huge infrastructure right, attack in the direction of saying, oh, well, that's not anything to do with, with, with the government. So I, I think this is still the early days for this administration. Uh, and, and in effect, what they were doing was uh, illustrating a kind of allergic reaction to a certain sector right, of, the, of the economy. We're just against big bad oil companies in general. They bring all of that in and here's a big bad oil company and pipelines and it's just, just a knee jerk reaction. Now how it's going to play out when they get more thoughtful, when they get the pushback and so forth, Obviously, I can't predict any of that, but we do have, again, a political ideological and, and an academic background that is setting the stage for this kind of automated response when, uh, when uh, the, the political rubber meets the road. So I know from having many, many conversations with my, my fellow academics, it's very hard to pin them down on energy policy. Um, you know, they uh, are, are, are largely opposed to pipelines, and so they were dramatically in favor of the pipeline in particular. Uh, but then it turns out it's not really about the pipeline, it's because the pipeline is owned by oil companies. And really the problem is a little bit more abstract. It's oil companies that are one of the big great Satans in our, our culture, and so it's a, a general adversarialism toward oil companies in general. And then we can broaden that to being, we're opposed to fossil fuels in, in general. And then you say, well, uh, what then do you think about nuclear power if you're opposed to fossil fuels? And then it turns out, well, it's not really pipelines or oil or fossil fuels in general. It's kind of all sorts of energy, including nuclear that we are opposed to. And pretty soon what you get to among the more thoughtful people is that uh, there are some core themes that are guiding their thinking, that they think that anything that is driven by self-interest is bad. And so what we find is that we are using all of these products to finance our very self-interested consumerist lifestyle, and they're more philosophically opposed to that, right? And so the skirmish really just is about the oil companies, uh, and really behind that is this great unease about human self-interest and, and, and enjoying your life. And the reason for that then they think is, you know, they think of themselves as longer term thinking people. They do worry about uh, our inability to, uh, to regulate ourselves. We're just going to use up all of the resources. We're just going to throw all of the garbage in the oceans and, and in the air and so on. And so they have this background assumption that human beings really are not only self-interested, but very short-sighted in their self-interest. And that's what they are afraid of. Uh, and then even more broadly speaking, that this self-interested uh, uh, behavior that is very short-sighted is necessarily zero-sum. So once again, we are back to philosophical issues. What do you think about the morality of self-interest? Are you on board with that or not? What is your epistemology? Do you think that people are short range and grasping or can they think long-term big picture and, uh, and, and in principle? And do you think it's possible for human beings to work things out in a win-win in a fashion or do you think it's zero sum? So I think once again, we have a philosophical battle on our hands defending self-interest, reason, epistemology and win-win social relations, but we're up against people who are operationalizing a worldview that doesn't believe in that. And that comes out in knee-jerk automated reactions against pipelines, tankers, right? oil companies, any sort of thing that's going to increase the uh, energy consumption in the society. I, I, I might just add that uh, I've always thought that the 
uh, allegiance to windmills, solar, biomass. Mm. They, they are uniquely pre-industrial energy sources. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so the wind turbines today are much more modern than the old, you know, Holland windmills. But but it is very revealing that the only energy sources they endorse are the ones that came prior to the Industrial Revolution. So it's it, it could be due to postmodernism, but it's really a desire to return to pre-modernism. I think it also might be worth integrating back with our prior topic, uh, Professor Hicks mentioning uh, probing for the enemy's weakness. I think this may sound a little conspiracy theory, but I think a possible cause of the indifference to the the pipeline shutdown would be, well, let's see what it's like to live without fossil fuels. Maybe it's not so bad. Uh, same thing with the shutdowns and the lockdowns over the past year. I don't know. Let's let's see if we, you know, oh look, we are reducing our carbon footprint here. Uh, people are going out. Let you know. So is that was that so bad after all? Type of thing. And and if that's driving it, then there's going to be much more of this. Right? There's going to be much more, not just of international domestic terrorists who would say, oh, we need to just shut down, not just by presidential edict. Uh, we need to hack and shut down the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Uh, or other industries that we consider to be, you know, super capitalist. So uh, that that's a that's a possibility as well. That's out there. I think probing for yeah. So we're yeah we're emphasizing the uh, the negative here a lot, which is important. But let me just uh, make a little plug for uh, Alex Epstein, whom I've never met, but he did write a very good book and has been doing good work on uh, defending fossil fuels in particular, yeah. but then more broadly speaking a philosophical defense of human energy consumption. So that's Alex Epstein. Look him up if you're not familiar with him yet. Yeah, he's great. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Robert, Robert Bradley Jr. Uh, is another name worth exploring here. He's a PhD in political economy and uh, runs, a, runs a think tank focused on energy policy. Robert Bradley Jr. Thanks, Stephen. We, there was a comment um, from Don Mertz, and I'm just going to ask you a question about that. He's saying that the initial assessment was that the dark side hacking was not promote, wasn't um, primarily monetarily motivated, but it, or it was monetarily motivated, not really working as a hack, that they really just wanted money. So the target was the operating system and not the pipeline infrastructure. Um, so I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, does that change anything that you've said about the government's response to that? I mean, it doesn't change anything I said. I, I've noticed the same thing, but they, they still in picking targets, it would be a lot easier for Darkseid and others to pick targets that they know don't have much sympathy, at least from the administration. So uh, picking an oil pipeline in that regard. By the way, the other thing, the, the fact that we even know them as Darkseid, and there are other names associated with others who do this. I, I, I saw one account of what was happening with Colonial, and it literally said something like, the Darkseid spokesman said, uh, and on their website, which is apparently deep dark web website somewhere, the, the idea that they're known to be where they are and that they couldn't be traced by a sophisticated CIA or FBI is just ridiculous. Of course, they could be traced. Mm -hmm. And with the help of Interpol or whatever, I'm sure you could trace them. But the other thing I noticed, very interesting, an altruistic angle to this, uh, it was reported that they said we're using the money for altruistic reasons. We're, we're, we're using this ransom we got 
uh, not to go, uh, you know, and 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 pursue our own self-interested, greedy things, but we're giving it away to social justice causes. So that I think is very interesting. They know well regarding not only who they are attacking, uh, big bad oil companies uh, and pipeline companies that don't have much sympathy in the public eye, uh, but then also saying, well, we're also used. We're kind of like Robin Hood here. So uh, who would complain? We're, we're spending the money on social justice causes, and uh, uh, who could object to that? So. Uh, that's part of this equation too. It's just interesting in the last 20 years, how many Hollywood movies have been exactly on that theme. So we're all familiar with the with the script. Yeah. yeah. I just want to jump in with one more comment about uh, kind of windmills and solar that, that Richard uh, mentioned. I think you know, the healthy way for all of us to think about those as possible energy sources is, you know, of course they were pre-modern, but also we do have lots of great new science and technology. So maybe there's a place for reviving them and uh, you know maybe yeah. a high-tech windmill and high-tech solar yeah. Yeah. can be great uh, additions to our, our energy repertoire in the future uh, and all of that's healthy and so let's do the experimenting and, and see if it works but uh, with respect to the ideological enemies that we're talking about now that's not how they get there it's not a trial and error we like sci tech and, right. uh, and right. to increase the net energy stock it really is right. a, a a religious commitment to them and they are already on board and true believers absent doing any sort of cost benefit analysis or really knowing anything about the state of technology. It's a philosophical mindset that's very alien to ours. Great, thanks. And I'm gonna ask everybody to continue to submit questions. We have quite a few, so I'm gonna start uh -huh. getting to some of those. Um, let's go back to critical race theory. And Nicholas Paulson was wondering about, um, actually about religion. He says, when I look at the SJWs of today, it seems like critical theory has replaced many of the functions of religion in their world. Considering the impact postmodernism and critical theory have had, did Rand underestimate the importance of religion in the average person's daily life? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the uh, the parallels are are there, and they are they're absolutely correct. There's lots of philosophical differences, but uh, if you just focus on religion as a psychological vehicle, right, or or something that pushes psychological buttons, absent the the truth or falsity of them, what we do have is uh, uh, you know every generation has people who want a, a great cause. Uh, they want to be able to commit themselves to that great cause in order to find meaning in their lives. And uh, it almost always is a cause that uh, does not involve them creating personal value, developing a business, starting a family, and becoming artists and scientists in their own right. The language they always use is something larger than themselves that they can absorb themselves into and find meaning in that. So at that level of abstraction, you do have a large number of people in every generation who are primed for whatever the religion of the day is. And religion of the day here can be secular. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a metaphysical set of commitments there. So then the second part of the, uh, the question is about postmodernism in particular. Uh, and I would say, yes, you know, it has contributed significantly to the, the, the undermining of people's ability to think and function as competent individuals and to know that they can function as competent individuals in a, a complicated world that we, that we live in. So to the extent that people are 
sent away from schools, you know, minted, but uh, the, the, the degree doesn't really mean anything. You are going to have a large number of people who are looking for something to look after them and, and, and to give them a sense of identity and purpose and whatever happens to be prevailing in the, in the culture, that's what they will latch on to. So again, uh, social justice warrior-ing, uh, they don't necessarily have to know much about the cause. From their perspective, the point just is that it is a cause and they want to be a part of a cause and it's the one available, so they, they will jump into that. Now, as for uh, RAND and underestimating the, uh, the, the power of the, this very broadly defined kind of emptiness that certain kinds of religion will fill as a void. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, she was very perceptive in diagnosing all sorts of variants on that in her own generation and in previous generations. Uh, but I think that just the expectation would be that every generation is going to have its own variants on that. So we can't you know, expect her to uh, you know, now 30 some odd years later to predict, the, to predict rather the particular versions of, uh, of, of this empty religious seeking that are going to manifest themselves. That's our job. It might interest you also, the, the questioner's name is what, Vicki? I'm sorry, the questioner was uh, Paul, uh, I forget. Um, there's a lot of literature uh, showing uh, the overlap and parallels between environmentalism and religion. Mm. It's a deep literature, there's a lot on this, and it's really fascinating. The best, the be one of the best is Robert Nelson. So if you just search Robert Nelson, environmentalism and religion, you'll see a lot. Now, here's the other thing you notice. If you see conservative critiques of environmentalism, which you do see sometimes, it's very interesting the language they use. The conservatives will say, these environmentalists are treating it like religion. These environmentalists are dogmatic. These environmentalists are thinking of end of days and ap apocalyptic visions. Every time I hear that, I think to myself, yes, those are weapons you gave them dear religionist. And so if you're concerned about others using kind of religious methodologies and religious visions. Uh, Who's going to want the competition, Dr. Yeah, well, right. They don't want the competition. The other thing is social justice might interest you that, uh, believe it or not, Luigi Taparelli, keep that name in mind, Luigi Taparelli, a Jesuit thinker from the 1850s, coined the term social justice. So social justice comes from Catholic doctrine. It does not come from Marx uh, or the secularists or even Auguste Comte. So writing right around the same time, Luigi Taparelli, if you want more on this, I discussed Taparelli in an essay I wrote called Holy Scripture and the Welfare State many years back. It was about eight years ago. Holy Scripture and the Welfare State showing all the relationships between biblical injunctions, Taparelli's theory, and the welfare state obligations people feel the state has. Well, and I apologize, I was on mute, but that was Nicholas Paulson who okay, had asked that. So hopefully he heard your answer. And I also but, want to throw out uh, Lawrence Borland mentioned original sin, another religious concept because he said his favorite argument for um, adults and parents fighting CRT is to say, I don't accept unearned guilt. So mm -hmm. yeah. another. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. 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 Um, but it also, uh, let me just, uh, you know, other elements of that are the, uh, the use of uh, guilt and shame as uh, yeah. psychological weapons, kind yeah. of moralized right, for particular purposes. And then on the flip side of that, uh, you know, you find in the, in the, in the, in the racial theory as well, you know, the, the sense of you being part of a chosen people or a special yeah. group yeah. 
in an unearned way that gives you status. And you are also yeah, fighting the great Satan uh, and thereby having significance in your life. So yeah, the parallels become striking. Well, Shannon Futch was asking why Orwell's Animal Farm is no longer required reading. And I bring that up because we were talking about education. Too many big words. And, <laughs> and I Sorry, think- Sorry, I don't mean that. <laughs> I think the problem, especially in higher education, um, that the teachers of the teachers aren't even reading a lot of this work. Sure. Well, yeah, I, I, part of it is just going to be a generational. Very few works survive the winnowing out process after several generations and so on. Uh, so it's only the, the classics of the classics that really, that really uh, make it. But even there, there is a kind of uh, ahistorical teaching right now that every generation has its own unique challenges. And so anything going back two or three generations really isn't going to be, going to be too relevant and so on. But I think uh, no doubt the most important reason going, is going to be that Orwell pitches his critique of collectivism at a higher level of abstraction. It's not just going after Fabian socialists or national socialists or, or, or communists and so on. It's against collectivism in general. And so you know, this generation's collectivists, they can recognize that it's an attack on them. They're smart enough to do that, so they don't want to expose their students to it. Of course, one of the great themes in Animal Farm is equality. Some are what? What is it? Some are more equal than others. Some animals are more equal than others. Yeah. But they notice the shift in language in the administration. But this comes straight from academia, as all things like this do. Equity. Yeah. Not equality. Equity, yeah. Which is not equality. It's it's equality of result, if you wish, or equality of outcome. A pure egalitarian standard, but not just that. Disparate effects. What they call disparate effect. Differential. Mm -hmm effects they take as ipso facto evidence of a prior wrong. Right. So if there's a difference, say, in the average net worth of black families versus white families, they don't attribute it to anything else other than racism. So that's yeah. back to CRT a little bit, but uh, that's happening as well. And, and, and in the quote Dr. Hicks gave, opposing the idea of equality before the law, opposing the idea of constitutional objectivity, even yeah. the opposing the idea of colorblindness, when you say, if you say I'm colorblind, they say that's evidence that you're a racist yeah. because you're evading the fact that it's impossible to be colorblind. Mm -hmm. And colorblind to me is just the word for objectivity applicable to race. You know, it's literally a, a non-essential to me. I saw, I saw a case where a teacher was browbeating over Zoom. That's why it was publicized, browbeating a student for looking at a video and not stressing the fact that there was a black and white person in the room. And the professor kept saying, why don't you notice what's going on here? And the student said, I just see two people talking. Don't you notice racial, racial differences? And he says, now that you, the student says, now that you mention it, I do see that, but I don't see that as essential. And, and this, the professor was insisting that the very fact that there were racial differences meant that you were racist or not. So really bad stuff in that regard. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's a general point about the uh, use of rhetoric here. So equity is another, uh, you know, in our language, it's an anti-concept. I mean, equity has a perfectly legitimate meaning, but it's a term yeah. that's been borrowed, hollowed out, and then repackaged for right. a very different purpose. The same thing with the concept of privilege uh, and even the understanding of what racism is. So 
you really have to uh, do the linguistic work uh, as well. Most of us will recognize, you know, kind of by smell, to use that metaphor, that there's something uh, bad going on here. But one of the things you can look for is uh, the definitions of the terms. And so the cognitive clarity matters and it's, it's, it's really weaponized rhetoric. That is for sure. I am afraid I don't have time for any more questions. This always happens, it goes too fast. Um, so I apologize to any of you who had questions and I did not get to them, but I do wanna thank you, Stephen and Richard and thank everybody for joining us. Richard, I know you've got a book coming out in a couple of weeks. You wanna tell us really quick about that? I do very quickly. It's called, Where Have All the Capitalists Gone? And so mm -hmm. it attempts to answer why we seem to have a very good couple of decades ending the last century, getting rid of the Cold War and moving toward a freer society and why the last 20 years seem to have gone in the other direction. So uh, as you can imagine, the argument would be, well, is it, is it that the moral case for capitalism is missing? Because the mm -hmm. practical case is there. So um, yeah, the book will be coming out within a few weeks and I'm already doing some uh, tours and lectures and stuff on it. So look for that. Great. Thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Let me just say, Vicki, I've been scanning all of the questions in the chat, and there's a huge number of questions on a wide range of issues. So I just want to say to the, the people who are listening to this, uh, if you're strong interest in there being another kind of Atlas Society ask, but just general questions being put to, to us, uh, let Vicki know so that you can do the uh, the internal lobbying, if we can use that language to, uh, to, uh, to shift things in that direction. Yeah, that's actually a great idea because I, I know that there are a lot of people who wanna pick your brains, not necessarily simply on what we're talking about today. So that may be a great idea. Yeah, definitely you can email me um, and you can find me on the Atlas Society website and let me know what your thoughts are about that. And also, if you enjoy this video or any of our other material, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And we will definitely be promoting Richard's book, so you'll be able to find that as well. And then be sure to tune in next week when we have screenwriter, director, novelist, Randy Wallace as our guest for the next episode of the Atlas Society Ask. And thanks again for joining us, and have a great rest of the week. Thank you, Vic. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, all. That was good.